So there probably isn't any other topic more misunderstood or misrepresented, at least in a broader sense, than the topic that I'm going to be addressing today. And the topic is the state of man after death and the resurrection of the dead. That's chapter 31 in the uh, Confession. We've all seen the many depictions from Hollywood and what uh, death and the afterlife may look like or what they think death and the afterlife looks like. There are countless books out there that have profited from stories of people who supposedly have had death experiences and they live to tell about it. And sadly, uh, many have bought into their stories, including professing Christians, but what many have failed to do is to verify these ideas, these thoughts, these concepts with Scripture. Um, but even from a theological perspective, there are ideas out there that have eventually developed into official Christian doctrine in some traditions, and which are based fundamentally on what I think are bad assumptions about this topic. Uh, in the Reformed tradition, interestingly, the particular Baptists saw no reason to disagree with the Presbyterians and with the Congregationalists on this subject. And so, uh, and I think this is a good thing uh, because uh, I think it's good that the particular Baptists had no intention to create their own way, but rather to acknowledge the theology and the exegesis and the interpretation that is, I think, most, most faithful to Scripture and is not with the intention to become an isolated sect but rather to be part of the bigger, broader collective of, of Reformed Orthodoxy. And of, also of the theology of the early church fathers, which they tried to recover. So you might look at the Westminster Confession or the Savoy, and, and you'll see that we're pretty much word for word there. Uh, my hope today is to break down the content of the passages, or the paragraphs that you have in front of you. And I'll say this, there's a lot to say about this topic, so just consider this a surface level of, uh, of teaching on this kind of subject. Uh, so let's just jump right in. Let's look at paragraph one. Can someone read paragraph one? So what we see in this paragraph is the subject of death, right, and the state immediately after death, uh, which in theology is called the intermediate state, right? You have death, and then you get into the intermediate state. Uh, this is the period between death and the actual appointed day of resurrection, right, the final day, the day that God comes in, resurrects the dead, uh, and in that day there's, uh, there's a unique specific kind of judgment uh, that's probably the, the most common uh, judgment that I think often people think of when they think of that last day, right? This is the period in between death, right, your death, and that final uh, day of resurrection. Now, let's, let's talk about death first. Uh, the Confession states that the bodies of man at death shall return to dust. And we see this not only through natural observation, right, you've... I mean, I don't think you've stared at a body as it decays, but I think, you know, there is natural observation of this, right? We have it, it's proven that the body decays, and you see the body when it goes into the casket and it drops into the, into the ground, uh, and it naturally decays. Uh, but this is also confirmed in Genesis 3.19, so it's not like, it's not science versus religion, um, actually, Christianity confirms this. It testifies to this reality. And you see this in Genesis 3, 19, where it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you, what? Return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And many who have denied the existence of God 
or the claims of any religion have probably done so on the basis of this reality, that the body of all men after death will literally turn to dust. And so when they, since they know that, they say, well, what's, what's after that? What can, possibly af- what can possibly be after that? And the doubts come in as they think to themselves what hope could possibly come after the body decays, but to that I'd say that the Christians are not ignorant of the fact that the dead are buried and it is scientifically proven that in a matter of hours the body begins that process of decay. And as much as we're prepared, as much as we prepare the body on the day of the funeral with clothing and there's even a makeup session possibly, the scriptures also affirm what I said, this reality that none of that will preserve this body. The body will go down there uh, and it will, it will see corruption. Uh, the, the confession uses the term corruption, and I think the scriptures does too. They use the term corruption uh, to describe what we're talking about. And we read that, uh, we read in scripture that the bodies of men will undergo corruption or see corruption. And you see that in Acts 13, 36, where it says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Uh, you know, in short, he, he saw decay. The Greek, the Greek word for that word is diathora, diathora, which would mean a thorough destruction affected by the decay of the body. So, decay, in other words. Uh, and this is what happens to the human body at death. It undergoes corruption. And the only exception to this, actually, I'll open it up to you. Does anyone know of an exception to someone or a few people who have not undergo decay but were taken up and never met, never faced that yet? Enoch, I saw that. I see that hand. (laughs) Yeah, Enoch and Elijah. Uh, And anyone in the future who is alive during Christ's return, right? So when... Christ comes back at that moment. If you're if you if you're not dead, if you're alive still, you will not you you will not undergo that corruption. But as we read on in Acts 13, we see that the author of Acts, which is Luke, uh, he quotes the Psalms that points to the blessed hope in Jesus. Right, the one whom the Scriptures reveal to have never seen corruption. This is Jesus Christ. Let's look at that. Acts 13:34 through 37. Uh, can someone read it? As for the fact that he raised you from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Thank you. So Christ did not see corruption. Now, the fact that Christ didn't undergo this decay, um, either way would not have stopped him from resurrect, resurrecting as he did. It doesn't affect anything necessarily. However, you might, find, you might find it insightful to know that Christ not going under or not undergoing decay was actually a clear indication to all believers that Jesus was spotless and sinless. Right? His body was preserved because he's not, uh, even bodily, he's not uh, facing the repercussions of sin and the fall. Now, he did face death, and that was, that was specifically for the reason of facing death on our behalf. Uh, again, but although he faced death, death could not hold him, nor was he under the curse of the fall, as I mentioned. And as you know, decay, right, this, this thing that we assume is natural, is actually a result of the fall, and oftentimes we think that decay is a natural process, right? We see things decaying, like I put an apple out and it rots, you know, things are dying. And uh, we see this, this idea, we, we understand this idea of decaying as something very natural, but uh, it's actually quite the opposite. There's nothing more unnatural about decay and death. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it's a very strange thing that happens when we have a loved one pass away or someone gets sick and, and, and passes away. Um, it's, a, it's a dark moment. It's a hard moment to, 
to feel and to, to experience. Uh, and, and part of that is that we weren't meant to experience that. No one. God's creation was meant to have uh, everlasting you know, qualities about it. Uh, so again, there couldn't be anything more unnatural than decay. God's intention from the beginning was life and life abundantly. So when you see decay, it should serve as a reminder of the fallenness of this world. And of course, in a sense, uh, as a pointer to the hope that we long for, right? That hope that is promised to us that one day our Lord will restore things uh, back to, to how it was intentionally created to be. And even, even more than that, I think, further clothed, further glorified uh, in a permanent state. And so it should serve that purpose every time we, we see decay and death. Moving along to the second sentence in the paragraph one, we see that there's a clear distinction between the body and the soul. There's a distinction between the body and the soul, specifically and especially when we talk about the intermediate state. And I'm going to break that down a little bit more. Uh, so although, the, the, although man's body returns to dust, what happens to the soul? Well, the soul neither dies nor does it fall asleep. The soul is, is not in a state of unconsciousness. The soul neither dies nor sleep. The confession uses the phrase immortal character to describe the soul as one that lives forever or one that is deathless. Uh, Christians believe that the soul, like everything else, is created by God and dependent on God for its continual existence. So it's not immortal independently from God, right? So your soul is immortal or immortal in character. So it, it, there's nothing about it that com competes to the immortal and everlasting character of God, right? Even though it's, it has, uh, even though it's immortal in character, it's still very dependent on God, right? Uh, you, you are still sustained by God. Your soul is still sustained by God. So it's not immortal in the sense that it's independent from anything else, specifically God himself. Uh, but it's completely dependent on God. Uh, now, being that the soul is not like the body, but continues on after, is where we get our concept of the soul being uh, opposite of mortal, Right? And we see that distinction in Scripture with James 2.26 where it reads, Far as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith from works is dead. And so James, in that passage, he uses this example basically to defend his point on faith and works. But his example presupposes this truth about the distinctiveness of the soul in comparison to the mortality of the body. The body decays, but the soul is not decaying. But more importantly, the confession also states that the soul uh, goes somewhere, right? It doesn't float around like uh, some of the ghost stories that we see um, being told in today's time. Uh, it, it actually goes somewhere. It doesn't stay around. Where does it go? The scriptures teach that it immediately returns to God who gave them. This is a very clear distinction of the body and the soul, right? Rather than returning to dust at death, the soul returns to God. Where the confession speaks of the soul, the soul stating that it neither dies nor goes to sleep, right? The idea is that the soul continues to know. It continues to have consciousness. That doesn't stop. It returns to God with the purpose of being assigned reward or punishment until the final judgment. Right, so what do I mean by that? That it, it receives some sort of reward or punishment at that very moment. Well, we know it's not the final judgment there, right? This is an intermediate state. But God still appoints you to either cursedness or blessedness, right? Uh, to remain in the presence of God or to be uh, set apart from his, uh, uh, from his, I guess, goodness. <laughs> Right? Yeah, because he's not, uh, you're not technically apart from God um, if we're consistent with our understanding of God's uh, omnipresence. Okay, so what does this look like? Well, let's read a couple of passages. Ecclesiastes 12, 7, 7 excuse me, not 77. 
reads, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. So here we see clearly that the body returns to dust and the soul returns to God. Now the big question should follow, which is what happens to the soul of the wicked, right? Does, that, does the soul of the wicked also return to God? Um, I'll begin answering that by starting first that the soul, with the soul of the righteous. So let's talk about the righteous first, and then we'll talk about what happens with the soul of the wicked. Uh, let's look at the third sentence in paragraph one. Uh, it says, The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and are received into paradise. And so the souls of the righteous, referring to those who are made right in Christ, right, are immediately received in paradise to be with Christ. And the confession clearly teaches that this immediately follows after death. There is no interim period in between and I think this, this addresses somewhat to the issue of purgatory, uh, but we'll, we'll deal with that later. Uh, let's look at Philippians 1, 19 through 24. Can I get someone to read that? For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. But my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Yeah, thank you. So... <clears throat> What we get, what we gain from this passage is that um, we see that Paul speaks in light of the fact that to depart when you die, it means to be with Christ. That's why there's no, there's nothing in between that. Right? You die, and I'm speaking specifically about the righteous, right? Those who are made right in Christ. That to depart means immediate uh, presence before Christ. And I think the, the clearest example of this is Luke 23. Uh, 42 through 43 where it says and he said Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and he said to him truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise so you see that language of immediacy and this displays two truths about the righteous after death that we that we will be we will immediately be in paradise and I think best of all that we would be with Christ right? it's not that we enter into a beautiful place, there's no Jesus there. Uh, no, we, we will be with Christ. In fact, I think it's encouraging to know that even, even in the intermediate state, uh, Christ wants us with him, where he is. And I think naturally that brings us to a follow-up question. Uh, if we will be with Christ, then where is Christ? You know, where, where is he? Uh, and, and we read in scripture that Christ is highly exalted in heaven. Uh, we see this in John 16, 28, which reads, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And so we're, if we're, when we die, those of us who are righteous in Christ, uh, and we're, we're taken to Christ, the question is, where is Christ? Well, he is there with the Father. Uh, so Christ has gone up with the Father in his dwelling place. And again, where is this place where the Father dwells? Uh, Matthew 6, 9, which is the, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we read, right, that the, Father, that, that the Father's place is in heaven, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, what is heaven <laughs> exactly? Uh, well, we know God is omnipresent, so he's technically everywhere. We see that God is in heaven, our Father who art in heaven. He's technically everywhere. However, uh, we would say that heaven is the special dwelling uh, of God where he especially manifests his glory. Um, we know this from Isaiah, six, uh, Isaiah 63, 15, which says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. 
look down from heaven and see uh, from your holy and beautiful habitation. Now, uh, I'm aware that in scripture we can commonly see different uh, ways of using heaven, right? There's uh, an atmospheric sort of airy heaven. Uh, when, you, when you see that word heaven, oftentimes it just means the sky. Uh, the, the starry celestial heaven, of course. And then there are instances in scripture where heaven is used to refer to the dwelling place of God. And, and uh, again, the, the theology has to uh, qualify that even because we also know that he's everywhere. <laughs> uh, but the way that heaven is used, at least in reference to the dwelling place of God, is that this is where he especially manifests his glory and where he's worshipped by angels, etc. Interestingly, the heaven of heavens that's mentioned in 1 Kings 8.27 regards heaven as a physical place, an actual location. And while it also expresses that it cannot contain God and his infinite nature, of course, it's still an actual place where angels praise God and where his glory and presence is manifested. So we have to kind of do away with this idea that it's not like a real place. Um, And I think part of that is because we, you know, we can shoot rockets from NASA with people in them. I think those are called spaceships, right? Um, We can send them off and they they still, right, they still haven't discovered uh, this location. But just because it, it, it's not discoverable uh, from a fallen human sense, in a, in a fallen human sense, doesn't mean that it's not an actual location. Uh, the, the scriptures speak on heaven as an actual physical location. Um, spiritual, of course, in nature, but, um, but it is a place where the, bod- where the bodily resurrected Christ is at. So trying to figure that one out, uh, just don't ask me. Don't, don't write that question in that green box because you're probably not going to get that answer. Um, so again, is heaven then a place? Yes, this is proved by the fact that Enoch, Elijah, and of course our Lord are there in a bodily sense. And we see this in Genesis 5, 21 through 24. You also see this in uh, 2 Kings 2, 10, 11. I don't have time to, to really... Uh, look at those passages, but it's, it's there, believe me. And we remember as well our Lord appearing to his disciples in a physical body. And it was in that state that he ascended to heaven. Oh, something happened there. Uh, very simply put, heaven is a real place. Real dimensions, just as real as, as any other place. Heaven is called the city of God. You see that in Hebrews and also Galatians. It's also called the paradise of God in Revelation 2.7 which is uh, clearly reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. Uh, and you, you can tell because even as those who uh, set up the temple and the way that it was set up, it was set up in a way that um, sort of resembled the Garden of Eden. And of course the temple uh, was, based off of the theology in Hebrews, we, we know that the temple was in a sense a, a typological version of heaven. And of course, the language in Revelation as well uh, tells us that. It's reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. There's also the Tree of Life in, in, uh, in heaven. Uh, another question, the intermediate state sounds a lot like the final eternal state. Are they the same? Are we confused about that? Is that intermediate state, right? Right after you pass away and you go somewhere, is that the final location? Are you done? That's, that's where you live happily ever after? Or is there something else? Uh, (coughs) They're not the same. The intermediate state is not the same as the final new heavens and the new earth that we read about, that we all long for, um, where we have the final consummation of all things. This is not that place, the intermediate state. However, the intermediate state does anticipate that eternal state. And heaven would be a, even now, a present anticipation of that future hope. Uh, Let's look at Revelation 21, verses 2 through 4. Can someone read that? 
and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Yeah, this is an encouraging passage. Um, and as we read it, I think there's something important that we have to consider from this, that before, before the day of God's final judgment, the intermediate state actually plays a major role in the spirits of, of believers. So it's not just a place where we hang out until the final, the final day. Uh, there, there are changes that happen uh, in our soul. There are things that actually happen uh, to and with those who are there in the intermediate state. Um, and again, just for clarification, remember that the intermediate state is that time when, when you pass away and the world is still going on, right? Other people are still alive while you're not. In that intermediate state, you are experiencing certain things there. Uh, I, I really wish I had time to go through each passage, but I'll, I'll just point you to them and I'll tell you what they say. Um, so the first, the first thing that happens there in the intermediate state is that we're made perfect and holy. We're made perfect and holy. Hebrews 12, 23. And obviously when I say perfect and holy, I'm not referring to uh, that glorified state of your actual physical body. This is something that's done to your soul at this moment because it's, it's, it's been divorced from the body, right? The body's decaying. It's dead. But this is something that's happening to your soul. We're made perfect and holy. Uh, we will be made like Christ, right? First John three, one, one to three. Another one: We shall behold God, and the intercession of the Lamb in the true temple, where they serve as priests and worship God. You see this in Revelation three twelve, and also Revelation twenty verse six. So Revelation three twelve, and Revelation twenty verse six. We'll behold God and also the intercession of the Lamb. Uh, number four, we'll find true Canaan rest. And I like the Canaan rest concept because it ties this concept of final rest to the story that has been, is continu continuously told from, from the Old Testament, right? In the Old Testament, you have this concept of the people of God seeking to find a place and a place of rest and a rest for their souls. And it's always things like idolatry and sin that get in the way and they never find that ultimate rest. And we, we can say amen to that too, right? We as Christians who, in a sense, are experiencing some level of rest for the mere fact that we're united to Christ and we're saved, there is some rest in our soul. But we're still having to die to, to, die to our flesh, die to our, our, our uh our desires, and uh, we're, still having, we're still having that battle as long as we're here in, in the flesh. And so that, that, that uh, theme, that motif, right, of, of the people of God trying to get to that place of ultimate rest, unhindered rest, is it, very common in Scripture. And, and in that intermediate state, we will finally come to that, uh, that, that perfect Canaan rest. Uh, you see this concept in Revelation 6, 11. And also Revelation 14, 13. Uh, another thing I would say is that we will be made perfectly happy in that current state, in this intermediate state, yet, and this is, this is where, this is where it's, uh, it's interesting. I don't, I don't really know how to, how to say how I feel about it, but really it doesn't matter how I feel about it. But uh, it's just an interesting thing that even though we're experiencing that, that perfect rest, it's not the ultimate rest. Um, in other words, we will, be, we will be in the presence of God and sin will be done away with, yet we, we would still be longing for the fullness of that 
in the day of the resurrection. And so you'll see even in scripture where there are those who are still in that intermediate state longing for God to take vengeance and, and, and to, you know, to, to bring ultimate consummation. Uh, and so there are people still there longing for the, those things, right? For the, the thing to finally end, for God to bring his justice down, for those who have martyred them or martyred family members, right? You have Christians up there in that intermediate state um, longing for that final day where God will settle all things. And so in that sense, we get this concept of that while you're in the intermediate state, there's still a more complete uh, fulfillment um, satisfaction and ultimate rest that we won't get in that intermediate state. Uh, we won't experience the fullness of that blessedness. Uh, and it's pending for five reasons. It's still pending because in this state we have not received the redemption of our bodies. Um, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are not fully redeemed. There's still some elect out in the world even while we're up there. And, you know, uh, the inheritance, right, uh, of redeemed creation is, is not, it's not complete yet until it actually is complete. We haven't been vindicated by that final judgment, as I spoke about a few minutes ago. And our enemies have not yet been judged ultimately at this point, which, which plays a big role in our ultimate rest. Uh, where, where there's still injustice, there is no peace. Now, we spoke about the righteous, right? That was a long one. What about the unrighteous and the unbeliever? What happens to him when he passes away? Well, let's go back and look at the fourth sentence of uh, paragraph one. It says that the soul of the wicked are thrown into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of that great day, or the great day. So we're now seeing what the confession says about the soul of the wicked, and the soul, this, this is the soul of the individual who has not had their sins forgiven uh, in Christ. Right? Everyone is a sinner, but the wicked are characterized by their uh, disobedience in relation to the gospel. They, they have not uh, turned to Christ. And so since, since scripture mentions that the soul returns to God, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's generally understood that God would still receive the souls even of the wicked. Right? He calls these souls back to him yet immediately require the soul to depart from him and, and sends him to the place of torment. And so to be consistent with the passages that speak about the soul returning to God, the way that you reconcile that is that God calls the souls back to him and then distributes their sentence, right? Not, not ultimately, there's still a judgment day, but he sends him either uh, apart from his good uh, presence or, or into his good presence, and so again, they, they, the souls of the wicked are sent to the place of torment. The confession shows us that the Bible speaks about three things regarding the soul of the wicked in, the, in this intermediate state. And so again, the question is, what happens to these folks in the, inter, inter, in the intermediate state? Well, you have the location, right? We mentioned heaven as the location for the righteous. The location for the uh, unbeliever, the wicked, is hell. And its circumstances, right, the experience that they have there is torment and darkness. And then there's still this expectation. You know, when you think about the expectation that those who are righteous have, well, there's also, in a sense, an expectation for those who are in hell. And that's that final day of judgment. Uh, let me start with location. The souls of the wicked are thrown into hell, says the confession. And the Old Testament uses the word Sheol, which is the equivalent of the Greek word in the New Testament translated as Hades. Uh, you have cults like Jehovah's Witnesses who would say that the word means oblivion or non-existing or non-existence or annihilation. And so they have this doctrine or this understanding of hell that is that when the person dies, he's just annihilated. He doesn't exist. Which consequently means that they actually don't face any sort of torment or punishment or experience darkness. There is a lack of consciousness. And the scriptures would refute that. 
uh, we see in Deuteronomy 32, verse 22. Can someone read that passage? Yeah, thank you. And so that fire kindled by God's anger it's certainly not oblivion, right? It's not, it's not nothing. <laughs> it's not this fire that God has. Like when I get upset and I, I'm at work and I get upset, I come home and I start speaking to the air and punching the pillow. <laughs> my, my wrath, my anger, this is not a real scenario, by the way. I come home super peaceful. Um, but, but if hypothetically, right, coming out of work, you're punching the, uh, the pillow, it's not wrath that's being poured out on nothing, all right? And so we see that uh, there's many passages in Scripture that speak about God pouring his wrath, uh, the fire kindling, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not nothing. It's absolutely something. Uh, you see in Job 24:19, drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. It's a terrifying uh, thing. And there are more passages I can talk about uh, that use the word Sheol. we got Job, Psalms, Proverbs. Um, I have a list of them. Uh, we just don't have time to go through them. Uh, modernists and some evangelicals, influenced by modernism, believe that Sheol refers to some shadowy netherworld or an underworld where everyone goes to, even the righteous. Right? You, in other words, the concept is you die and you enter this... Uh, this underworld, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, and they would believe that all men, both righteous and unrighteous, went to this gloomy netherworld. And the idea became popular and was based on texts that seemed to imply that. Uh, you look at Ecclesiastes, uh, let me turn it here, Ecclesiastes 3.19, where it says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts in the same? As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. So it almost seems, right, when you read something like that, that, have, uh, you know, this idea of heaven and earth is, is not really real. Um, everyone goes to the same place kind of thing. You have another one where in Ecclesiastes 6.6, 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Right. So it seems like they're all going to this one place. Uh, same thing in Genesis 37, 33 to 35, where it says, and he identified it and said, it is my son's robe, a fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to, comfort, uh, to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. You know, so it just, it just seems like all this is promoting this idea that Sheol is just this one place that everyone goes to. And we have to admit that these texts do teach that all men go to Sheol. But the, the, the issue is whether or not Sheol is, is to be classified as only hell, right? So in other words, the use of the word Sheol could possibly mean just the, the place of death, right? It, it, it wasn't meant to determine... Uh, the place of heaven or, or hell. Um, and that's, that's just me not really going into it as much, um, just for the sake of time. Um, the term Hades is the Greek equivalent to Sheol, and the way Hades is described in Luke 16 um, seems to speak of, it, speak of it as if it is hell, Right? Uh, the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, Sheol, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus as his side. And so we see that the poor man was carried to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, which is synonymous to heaven. And there are a number of texts in the Old Testament where this meaning of Sheol uh, naturally commends itself. Uh, Sheol must be defined in more general terms, as I mentioned, like, a, like the place of death or the place of the grave. And I think that's a good, proper way to understand the Apostles' Creed, 
whenever you recite or pray or, or, or read the Apostles' Creed, uh, it, it says he was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to hell. And sometimes we read that and say, he descended to hell, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, is that true? Is that faithful to the Christian doctrine? But when you understand the, the use of hell there as Sheol, uh, it would be, I think, a, a better way to understand that part of the Apostles' Creed would be he was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended to Sheol, or the place of the dead. Right? He, in other words, he entered the grave. He died. That, that's not the definition. Uh, there are many uh, different forms of interpretations of that, but I think it's a faithful and consistent way to understand why our, Apostle Creed, our Apostles' Creed says that he descended to hell. Um, again, those are just some thoughts. Now, when it comes to evidence of the existence of hell, we see it very clear in Scripture. Um, you see Proverbs uh, fifteen twenty four say, the path of life leads upward to the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. You see that sort of contrast, right? The path of life leads upward for the prudent, that he may turn away from Sheol beneath. So you see the use of the word Sheol as hell. Um, which sort of proves that the Bible does teach this doctrine of hell. Um, and then also Psalm 49, 14 through 15, like sheep they are appointed for Sheol, death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. So this doctrine of hell is real, it is, it is uh, woven into the, the scriptures. And so we have to affirm that those apart from Christ um, will receive punishment in hell. Now, praise God for the good news in these very Psalms that tell us that God is ransoming us from the power of Sheol and receiving us. And this is done in Christ, right? He's rescued us. If not, all of us would have that destiny. Uh, let me move on here. For the sake of time, uh, let's see. Let's go. Let's go to paragraph two. Can someone read paragraph two? At the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with self-same bodies. Although with different qualities, shall be united again to their souls. Thank you. Uh, we see in the first and second sentence that at the last day, those saints who are found alive will not sleep, like I mentioned earlier, but will be changed. All the dead will be raised up, right? I'm thinking of uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. that talk about this. Can someone read that? So I have another uh, passage here. Can I get another volunteer to read this one? 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Thank you. Now, looking back at the paragraph, uh, what does a confession mean when it says that the saints will be raised up with the very same bodies? And why is that even... Uh, why, why is God saving us, right? He, he, the, de the body goes to decay, 
But then at some point he pulls that body back out, starts using it again. Why is it that uh, the saints will be raised up with the very same bodies? Well, we understand what scripture says regarding a change that will happen, but why are our dead and decomposed bodies raised from the grave if they will be changed? Uh, What's the point of it? Uh, 19th century theologian Charles Hodge says, it is not a new body substituted for the old, but the old changed into the new. And, and it's a simple, simple concept, right? Uh, we see this theme uh, throughout scripture of the old being made new, right? God redeeming creation back. And I think that this speaks to the popular idea that God is just doing away with all material and he's just keeping the spiritual. In other words, um, you know, and a lot of, a lot of false religions sort of have that concept of soul and body where the body doesn't matter. It's just the soul that matters. Uh, and again, that a lot of that comes into the church for some reason where uh, God has no plan for the body. That it, you're, you, The future, what it looks like is a bunch of floating people, uh, floating spirits rather, just sort of floating around in the clouds. And that's, that's not the future. God is going to, going to pull your body back out from the grave and unite you once again with your body. We see that God is not just doing away with everything, right? He's not going to come and destroy the planet and just start all over. <laughs> the devil won, I guess, because he, you know, he pretty much ruined my initial creation. He's just going to, you know, do away with it. God, God and the victory of God over sin, Satan, and the devil in the world is this redeeming, this making new, this restoring what he already created what he initially pronounced to be good. So that includes your body. Uh, God is renewing everything, and this includes our body. Sam Waldron, in his exposition, uh, he has an exposition on the confession, points out a great analogy that uh, he found in, or he thought of in 1 Corinthians 15, 35 through 38. Let me read that passage um, just so that we know what he's talking about. That passage says, uh, But someone will ask... How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? 36 says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And so based on that passage, uh, Sam Waldron says this. He says, Uh, It is the physical life committed to the ground in the seed which springs up in the plant which grows from it. The existence of the plant means that there is no longer a dead seed buried in the ground. End quote. In other words, we die as the seed sowed, and we resurrect as the plant reaped. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, God designed it this way with such remarkable implications. This also does away with the false idea that our final eternal state would be all spiritual in the sense of being immaterial. That's not true. Many have misapplied or misunderstood the language of the Apostle Paul and his phrase heavenly body or spiritual body to assume that we're going to be ghosts in the future heavens and and, uh, future heaven and future new earth. Uh, They they think that this is a non-physical realm. On the contrary, many places in scripture indicate that our future body would be like Christ's resurrected body. A lot of scripture I can show you. Uh, we're out of time. Let's, uh, let's hit up uh, paragraph three, and then we'll, we'll close there. Can someone read paragraph three? <laughs> Thank you. So the confession states here that the bodies of the unjust will be raised by the power of Christ to dishonor. And by his spirit, the bodies of the just will be raised to honor. So to summarize that, those who are destined for eternal damnation and those who are destined for eternal blessedness, right, eternal life, both of their bodies will be raised. Both of them. In other words, your future is with a body. Um, 
However, the bodies will be resurrected in different, uh, into different states of, of being. So, for example, uh, we understand this concept of what is sown is reaped, right? This is just a kernel. When it's brought into the ground, what's resurrected is sort of what you've, you, it, it's sort of the, the version of you that you reaped from what you've sown. And, of course, in our case, it's what Christ reaps, um, for the, un, for the unbeliever, right, he's a seed, right? He gets thrown, think about a seed when you throw it in the ground and it, it brings about a beautiful flower. Uh, what the seed is, this unbeliever, when you throw him in the ground, what comes out of it is corruption. And this is the body that is going to be given to him in, in, in the day of resurrection. Um, He's going to come back, and the body that's given to him is going to be a body that will allow him to sustain and to, I wouldn't use the word endure, but to remain as God pours his wrath on this individual, right? Um, and so God is very serious about resurrecting your bodies. The, the question here is, for what purpose, right? Are, will you be resurrected into glory? Or will you be resurrected in a state of corruption? So that as you are resurrected and God unites you to your body, you have a body prepared for condemnation. That's, that's some dark stuff. Um, but that's exactly what, what will happen. There's so much good stuff, but I'm out of time, y'all. Man, that's it, y'all. That's it. Let me pray. Father, we thank you uh, that we were... Uh, we were able to touch somewhat some of these things, uh, to address some of these things, at least on a surface level. But I pray that it would in, in, entice um, more interest and desire to dig into these, these concepts, Lord, as they speak about our future hope. Uh, it, it speaks about what is to come. Uh, and, and we thank you that, we, that you've sealed us, Lord, uh, with this wonderful destiny. We long to be in your presence, unhindered, Lord. And yet until then, until then, I pray that we would meditate often on the hope that we have in this resurrection. And we thank you that in Christ, we have the hope of the resurrection unto glory and not one of corruption and condemnation. So we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.